evening. I invite you to open your Bibles. We're going to begin in Acts, the second chapter. We'll read a few verses there if you want to turn there uh, in just a few moments. Uh, I mentioned this morning how appreciative I was for Brother Ken t- teaching for me on Wednesday at such uh, short notice. And I've got to mention those who spoke for me on Sunday when I was gone as well for the gospel meeting. And I appreciate that very much. Uh, Brother Ralph, Brother Henley, uh, I, I, I thank those men who, who uh, fill in for me while I'm gone. Um, uh, the meeting at West Palm was uh, very encouraging to me. It's a very it's a congregation that's growing. Uh, in fact, they're getting ready to expand their building and have uh, little kids running around everywhere. And so it's a pretty exciting place to be. It was an exciting place to be uh, over the past weekend and, and to uh, speak. I got to share the pulpit with uh, a younger man. Of course, that's getting easier and easier to do. Uh, share the pulpit with a younger man, uh, Jeff uh, Wilson from Texas he preaches at the Kleinwood congregation um, and I told him at the meeting because uh, my brother's son-in-law is the, uh, uh, the preacher there, uh, Brent Kerchival and Brent's always been a really smart guy and I've always sort of referred to him on many occasions in terms of Bible study and I think Jeff's smarter than Brent is I, I don't know, I kind of got <laughs> so I sat between them and let them discuss the Bible and tried to soak it all in but uh, I told them that I just have to get used to being the dumbest guy in the room when it comes to that. But they, they were really some very uh, good Bible students, and I enjoyed it very much. Uh, we're going to begin uh, this evening at a passage I know that you're familiar with. Uh, Luke describes for us the occasion of the preaching of the gospel for the first time on the day of Pentecost. And speaking about the apostles, he says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them the ability to speak. And they were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astonished and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? I know that you've read these verses, I suspect that you have, many times in the context of the preaching of the gospel and uh, the call for individuals to become Christians. Uh, However many times I read Acts 2, it always thrills me to contemplate this miracle, uh, that in such a profound occasion that God would choose this miracle, a lot of different miracles, uh, no limitation to what God could do in a miraculous measure to introduce the gospel here to these individuals, that he chose this particular miracle where everyone would hear the apostles uh, speak in their own languages, men from all over the world, or at least certainly over that part of the world. Since the days of Genesis 11 uh, and the Tower of Babel, where God confused the languages of the people, we recognize that in our own experience even, that language has always been a barrier to the communication of individuals. Come from different nations and different cultures, uh, there is a lot that uh, maybe is uh, difficult to accomplish or maybe some things that, it's, um, that you can't accomplish or you don't get done because there's the barrier of language. And I think about as well that God doing his work, beginning his work here of spreading the gospel all over the world, uh, that this would be the way he would introduce it, that the Spirit would give them the power, every man the power to hear the, the word of God in a single language so that they could all hear what God was saying. I want to take a couple minutes uh, tonight and talk about language. Uh, These are what really I'm going to present here are just some observations that uh, I'll throw out there and you can uh, look at them from the consideration of a couple of different passages. 
uh, I, it reminded me a few moments ago when I was talking to Dick and Eileen that a few weeks ago in the Seven Lakes Bible class, we discussed the obstacle of language, that the Bible was written in languages that were far ago, far away and from, from our culture and that uh, we don't speak those original languages of the Bible anymore. And there are many different translations of the Bible, so you pick up this Bible and it reads different than this particular translation of this Bible. Yet we recognize that God has transmitted his word to us verbally. By that we mean he's translated it in words. And I think about that from the standpoint of uh, God's willingness to provide for us his will. How else would God do it? Uh, It's the natural way that God would create man with the ability to speak languages and communicate uh, through words that he would then communicate to us himself in the use of words. So it shouldn't throw us a curve to think about the fact that we have diff- we have the Bible that's translated in many different languages that the message of God has given to us in words. It makes sense from the standpoint of how God has given us the ability to, uh, to communicate and interpret language. But I also can relate to the difficulty that's involved in speaking or understanding someone that speaks a different language. Life becomes pretty complicated if you can't talk to someone and they understand what you're saying. A few years back, I went to Venezuela for a week to officiate baseball, um, and uh, I was the only umpire from the United States that went on the trip, and I don't speak Spanish, so it was a fish out of water. It was a very, the whole uh, week itself was uh, rather uh, complicated for me, not because of what was being said, but because I didn't understand a lot of what was being said, and therefore, though they were telling me things, even things that I already knew, I couldn't really understand what they were saying and many times they would um, I, I would sit and listen and they would laugh I think because they understood that I didn't know what they were talking about uh, but occasionally someone there were a couple of them that could speak English occasionally someone would say an English word and I'd ah oh English I know that language and I'd sort of begin to listen more carefully to see if they're going to say another word in English and maybe put a couple of them together and make a sentence out of it so it caught my attention And for a moment I came alive to the aspect of maybe I can understand. In the middle of the blah, 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 there was this word I understood. I remember reading an article by Gardner Hall, uh, preaches in New Jersey a little while back. He teaches in both English and Spanish uh, and spent many years in Argentina preaching the gospel. He told a similar story about his mother uh, and an an older Nigerian woman who were in the room together and there was a sort of a get-together type thing. uh, And she was there, but she didn't speak any English. So she was sort of aloof from them and sort of staying out of the conversation. And Gardner's mom knew a couple of Nigerian words, and she happened to say a phrase in this woman's native tongue, a word that meant good day. She said it in the Nigerian dialect, and immediately this woman got up from her chair, came over and took Gardner's mom's hand and started listening to the conversation. Because the language you see, the dialect itself perked her up. She realized, this is, what I, this is the language I speak. And she started paying attention to what was being said. In the context of those observations, and maybe you have similar ones, I want to make a couple observations about the aspect of God's word. There's a sense in which God has revealed the word of God in his own language. I'm not talking about the aspect of Greek or Hebrew uh, in terms of the Bible, but the aspect of being able to understand and being in a... privy to a platform from which you would understand what God is saying. In 1 Corinthians 2, the apostle says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. 
These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with the spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now we look at this passage and we recognize, I think, in looking at it in context, that what Paul is describing here is an overview of what we sometimes call the inspiration of scriptures. That what Paul is describing here, uh, in terms of his own, uh, of his own words here, is what all the apostles went through. When he says, we have received, the we there, I believe, refers to the apostles. That the apostles had received the message from God in spiritual words. And given the, the, given the spirit that's from God, then they could know the things of God, the things that he says here that were freely given by God, and they could speak in the words which the Holy Spirit teaches, the things that God had revealed. He says we didn't speak it, we're not speaking it in the words of human wisdom, but in spiritual words that the Holy Spirit teaches. I like the NIV rendering of verse 13. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truth and spiritual words. So what Paul's saying to the, to the Corinthian church is that what I'm speaking to you are the very words of God. In fact, the words themselves are from God. Now, what he says here, though, in the context of this, is that in speaking those spiritual words, there are some who do not understand it. And so one question that comes to mind in this passage is, who is the natural man? He says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. The typical denominational answer is rooted in the theology of Calvin and Calvinism. The natural man is the person who, who has not received a direct operation of the Holy Spirit, and thus he cannot understand the revelation of God. John MacArthur makes that point. God must open the eyes of our understanding before we can truly know and rightly interpret his truth. He says the truth is not made available to an unregenerate spirit in whom the Spirit does not dwell. The Spirit of God does not dwell. So the idea that God must give us the Spirit so we can understand the Word and then we can be obedient to it. There are several reasons why, and we're not going to go into a lot of them here, but there are several reasons why I believe that interpretation is not consistent with the other Scriptures. For one thing, other Scriptures teach us that the reception of the Holy Spirit, the promise that we would receive the Holy Spirit, is contingent upon one's faith and obedience to God. That it's God's children that get His Spirit. Not everyone gets it. And therefore, how can an unregenerate person possibly obey the God for the first time? How can he understand what he ought to obey if he, if he doesn't have any access to the Spirit of God that will make that available to him? So there, I think there are a lot of reasons why I would not interpret this natural man to be, uh, in terms of the teaching of Calvinism, an unregenerate sinner who cannot possibly know what God uh, would have for him uh, in the words of God. But there are some other answers that do make sense to me in the context of the rest of the scriptures. One is that if Paul is talking about the spiritual man being the apostle, the one who receives the spirit, the Holy Spirit and inspiration, are the apostles, and that the words of God's wisdom are given to him and he relays them on to others, then it would seem as though the one who does not receive the spirit, the one who does not receive those words, would be the person who had not received the inspiration of the spirit of God. Uh, Burton Kaufman says, Paul means the ordinary man cannot receive or give a revelation from God because God has not selected him or filled him with the Holy Spirit. So it does rely, reflect upon the aspect of receiving the Spirit, but he's talking about the apostles as a select group and those who were not inspired as the other group. The other view, I think that at least makes the most sense to me, is that what Paul is describing here as the natural man is the one who does not receive the words of the Spirit because he does not want to receive the words of the Spirit. That he refuses to allow the Spirit to influence him. 
In a sense, you see, God is speaking a different language. God is speaking the language that deals with things of a spiritual nature, dealing with the spiritual man and what the remedy of the problems of the spiritual man are. He's talking about a plan that's to be enacted on a spiritual level. And all of these things then that are brought to the natural man are foreign to him. It's as though he's listening to a completely different language. And the reason I think this fits is in chapter 3, Paul goes on to describe the, car, the, the Corinthians themselves as carnal. He says there, you see, I would say these to you, but I can't speak to you because you are carnal in your nature. Because they were, he goes on to say they were babes in Christ. So I think that's probably the best understanding. We'll look at that as we go through as to how that fits into what, uh, what this aspect of God's language would present to us. What does God's language include? God's revelation. One thing about the Bible, and again, this is an observation that I think makes a point to me. One thing about the Bible, it doesn't address every issue, does it? If you want to know how to fix the alternator in your car, it doesn't make it any good to find a chapter and verse for that. It's not in there. Even if you want to find something about the aspect of politics and the idea of the running of a nation, or even some things having to do with our society that are of a moral nature, they're not necessarily words in the Bible directly addressing that. But what is the Bible about? Well, the Bible, the inspired words, is a revelation on the specific issues of man's redemption. So it contains history. What history? All history? No, just some history. What history is included? History that has to do with redemption. The story is an ongoing story, and it is a single story. So as such, there are words that are used. There are concepts that are contained in Scripture that in sense of the restrictive nature of the inspiration of the Word of God form a language of their own in the sense that we can say these words are Bible words so to speak or they are the words of God's revelation words like God and sin and life and death the aspect of eternal life, redemption, fellowship love, holiness now you recognize those words don't you? Where do you recognize them from? You use them much in your daily conversation? Do you talk about holiness very much and, uh, with, the, with your neighbors or with a guy at work? But we recognize that that concept that word comes from God's Word. That these are ideas that He has presented to us. That apart from revelation, we wouldn't know anything about it. We wouldn't draw this stuff our get. There's no scientific discovery that would we, we'd be able to engage in that would give us some information about eternal life. Eternal life comes from the revelation of God. Any understanding that we have comes from the revelation of God. So in a sense, these words and this language is, is God's own language that He reveals to us. And so in Paul, as we, as we go on in that passage, 1 Corinthians 3, he, Paul says, I, brethren, could not speak to you, and that you there is the, the Christians at Corinth, as spiritual people, but, to, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ, meaning that they were babies in Christ. It wasn't that they were outside of Christ. They were babies in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, nor even now are you still not able, for you are still carnal, for where there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? What Paul says about the Corinthians is not that you haven't received the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Scriptures, but rather that you are still living a carnal way of life. You have decided to do things the carnal, you pursue things of the flesh, and because this is the, the, the emphasis of your life, when I speak to you about deeper spiritual things, you don't get it. I can't even bring it up. Now we think about that. There are things that individuals are able to understand because... They've been introduced to the Word of God. They've been introduced to the language. But there are other things that they're not able to understand because they haven't matured spiritually. And so they are what Paul calls spiritual babes. Take a baby, you don't feed them steak. You feed them milk. 
Solid food is for children as the, after they mature uh, into adolescence or adults. So just as a growing child, what the writer of Hebrews points out is that you should be growing. And he scolded the Hebrew Christians because he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles, the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid, come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. He's a babe. The solid food belongs to those who are of full age. So the idea is that the revelation of God, written in the language that God presents in the words that he presents, is to be uh, progressively uh, understood. The person are to mature in their understanding of what the scriptures say. So the Hebrew Christians here could have understood deeper spiritual language. They could have understood things that the writer of Hebrews had not yet revealed in them, but they were babies, and so he wanted to talk to them about Melchizedek. <laughs> but he couldn't. He did, but I mean, he struggled with the aspect of trying to get them to understand Melchizedek. At least that's the impression I get from Hebrews chapter 5. But they knew he knew that they wouldn't understand. Why? Because they couldn't understand? Because they had not matured. Now what I want us to see in this, at least an observation I would make about this, is the aspect of receiving spirit, the spiritual language of God. Understanding what God has for us involves free choice. It's not a matter that God would pick and choose who's going to understand, who's going to know, who's going to find out what God wants them to do and therefore be able to obey it. That just as a person would choose to mature, just as a person would choose to understand what God, what God initially said to them, so the free choice of understanding the will of God runs throughout. But of course there's a language barrier, isn't there? And we recognize that when we go out in the world and try to teach someone the truth who doesn't know the truth. Because the world is filled with what, Bible, what Paul describes here as the natural man or the natural woman. What happens when you speak God's spiritual language to a natural man or to a natural woman? You talk to them about salvation, about eternal life, about sin and that they are sinners. You discuss them about holiness and how they need to live holy and moral lives. And a lot of times, they don't know what you're talking about. They're not interested at all in these things that you're talking about when you speak to them in God's language, so to speak. When you speak to them the things that are found in the Bible itself. In fact, there's a sense in which there are many folks out there, the secularists of our day, who cannot understand the language of God at all. They make no attempt to understand what God is saying. They would rather talk about sports and about money and about their jobs, about entertainment. There are a lot of things that they can converse on. There are many things that they're interested in. And there are many languages that they can speak, but they do not understand the language of God. Now, it's not because they're not intelligent enough to understand it. They simply don't want to understand it. And we think about that from the standpoint of the preaching of the gospel in the first century. Near the end of uh, the history of the New Testament, in uh, the last events of Acts chapter 28, the last events of the book of Acts, Paul's in the city of Rome, and after he gets to the city of Rome, and remember that's where the Bible leaves him there, he calls the Jewish leaders after he gets into town and he asks them, says, has uh, is is my reputation preceded me here? Are you guys willing to listen to what I have to say or uh, have they poisoned your mind about me as well? And the leaders of the, uh, the Jewish leaders of the church of Rome said, no, 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 we, we, uh, uh, we haven't heard anything. We, we'd like to know what you have to say. 
And so Paul appointed a day, it says in verse 23, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets of morning to evening. So here's these Jewish leaders who come to hear Paul, and he does the same thing at the end of the book of Acts that he did at the beginning of the book of Acts when his ministry first started. He talks to these Jewish individuals right out of the Old Testament scriptures, speaking the language of the prophets about the coming of Jesus. It says in verse 24, some were persuaded by the things which they were spoken, and some disbelieved. That sounds familiar too. So when they could not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and shall not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their ears and hear with their ears, see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. He goes on to say, then let it be known that the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles and they're going to listen to what I have to say. And that seems to be where in some regards the, that the New Testament leaves us in the ministry of Paul. In exactly the same format where it began. Where Paul would go into a city and preach the gospel, some would believe, some would not believe. And that at least on three occasions, this prophecy of from Isaiah is brought into the text, brought into the thinking of the text, where he says, God said a long time ago that you will have ears but will not hear. You will have eyes but you will not see because you don't have a desire for spiritual things. If you would listen, I would heal you. If you would understand, then you could be saved. So there are some who think, you see, that the language of God... Uh, is ununderstandable, inexplicable, apart from a miracle. What the Bible teaches, though, is that's not true. That every man has the opportunity to hear the Word of God and understand it. There are some who think they want to receive God's Word, but when His Word calls upon them to repent and change their life, when He calls upon them to rend their garments and their hearts, they close their ears. Some of God's words are too hard for them. And so I think we have to consider... That Another example of this, I think, is John chapter 6, Jesus' own ministry. Jesus was teaching on the Sea of Galilee. He had fed the 5,000. He went on the other side of the sea, and they followed him over there. And great hordes of people, multitudes of people, were following Jesus. Maybe more than he had ever seen in his ministry before. And they wanted to make him king at that time. And John chapter 6, Jesus then first warned them about just following them because he was feeding them bread, that they they need to take it a little deeper than that. But then in the end of chapter 6, he starts talking to them in some very exact terms about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He's talking about not the literal activity of eating, eating and drinking flesh and blood, but the idea that they would commit themselves totally to them. For he says, my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. So he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He goes on to say that, uh, that uh, in, in that particular text, these things he said in the synagogues, he taught in the synagogue, and therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? Now what do they mean by that? This is a hard saying, who can understand it? Could they understand it? Was it possible for them to understand what Jesus was talking about in discipleship? I would suggest that, yes, they could understand it, that what they mean by it is a hard saying is that we don't know if we're willing to accept it or not. I don't know if we really want to do this. And so when Jesus knew it himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? 
Now, Jesus is getting at the heart of it, isn't it? He doesn't say, well, let me make it more clear so you can understand because I know that you probably don't understand what I'm saying. He says, no, the real issue is you're being offended by what I'm saying. He goes on, he says, what if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? What if you saw me go back to heaven? You're struggling over the fact that I come down out of heaven. You're struggling over the fact that I am the Son of God that I've clearly made note of. What if you saw me go back? Would you believe then? And then he says, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. As long as you look at this from the physical perspective, you're not going to get it. But the Spirit gives life. The words that I speak to you, he says, are the Spirit and they are the life. Now don't miss that connection. Jesus says, what if you saw a miracle? Would you believe? That would be the work of the Spirit. But he's asking that question rhetorically as though he's saying, even if you saw me ascend back to heaven, you still wouldn't believe. Why? Because you don't believe the words that I'm saying. The words that I speak to you, they are the Spirit and they are the life. But they didn't want to hear it. It was too hard. And so it says at the end of that chapter, many of them walked away from him and followed him no more. But there is good ground, isn't there? There are those hearts that are tuned into the language of God. There are individuals who listen to what God has to say. And they're willing to hear it. Their ears perk up when they understand what, that God is the one that's speaking. And they do what God would have them to do. So in that very same context, in John chapter 6, verse 68, Jesus turns to his own disciples and says, Are you going to go away too? And you remember who spoke up? Peter? To whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Now, did, did Peter get it? He said, you see, that we know where the powers come. We understand what you're saying. You are speaking for God. You have the words of eternal life. There's no place else we can go to get those. Peter understood that Jesus was speaking God's language and would listen carefully to what he had to say. And so I think those are important considerations. Real quickly here, God's language, what does our language reveal about us? And these are, again, these are some observations I think that I try to, that I try to make about, the particular, about this particular subject. How we talk and the words we use can reveal things about us physically. It can show how related you see to our family, to our environment. Uh, and there are some of you who betray where, you're at, where you come from, where you grew up, because, by the words that you use and by the accents of your dialect. And some of us are that way. We can't get away from it. Why? Because language is such... An integral part of who we are. Mark chapter 14, verse 70. You remember Peter? I haven't ever seen him. Oh yeah, you've seen him. You're one of him. Why? Because of the way you speak. We know. Surely are you one of them. If you're a Galilean and your speech shows it. They saw some things about... They heard, some, they heard Peter speak, just talk. And they knew he was a Galilean. So, we think about that in terms of today. When people speak... There's a sense that we can know something about them. I'm not talking about whether or not they're from Kentucky or Alabama or Canada. But whether or not they are of God or not of God. Whether or not they're individuals who are tuned into the language of God or not tuned into the language of God. So it tells sometimes something about us spiritually. Reveals our spiritual identity. Now it's not the only thing that reveals our spiritual identity. And I always suggest to you that if a person uses a certain word then we can know they're a Christian. If they don't use a certain word then they're not a Christian. But there are things that we need to recognize that come from God and things that come from man. You remember the question that Jesus posed to those who were, who were, who were, who were asking questions about uh, his own authority to clear out the temple. He said, well, 
by whose authority do you do these things? Well, by whose authority do you do these things? John the Baptist, is he from God or is he from men? You tell me. You should know, you should be able to tell me. And so recognize this aspect of being able to reveal what people believe by what they say. Uh, there's, there, we might be able to show recognize that a person's of the world, that they are carnal by, the, by their speech, that their speech is profane or crude or it's vulgar, and that Christians have to make a distinction in how they speak so that they don't appear to others as though they're not of God. And that's certainly legitimate, isn't it? A single corrupt word could ruin a person's reputation. Materialist. Talk to a person and in a little while in a conversation you realize uh, all this guy thinks about is money. That's all he wants to talk about is money. And, and, uh, and uh, whether he's upper class and he talks about the stock market or he's lower class and he talks about winning the lottery. That's all he thinks about is getting rich. And his language betrays it. And then there's the secularist where in terms of conversation with the individuals or the words that the phrase that they might use, you recognize by what they're saying that what they're telling us about themselves or telling, telling maybe what we're telling ourselves about ourselves is that we're trusting in human authority and religion and not God. So when someone says, what do you believe about this? Well, my church teaches. Well, it might be nice to know what your church teaches so that you can fellowship them or not fellowship them, but that's not a statement of authority, is it? God has given no legislative powers to the church to teach anything. Jesus is the head of the church, and his word is what legislates what is right and wrong. Or my preacher says this, or my pastor says this. What does that type of language indicate? Well, it may indicate that someone's looking to a human authority. It may reflect that we're basing our decisions or what we do on human tradition. What do followers of Christ say? Well, they say, God speaks. Thus saith the Lord. God says this. The scripture says this. This is what Jesus says. They make a clear attempt to speak what God says in God's own language rather than deflect it onto some other source of authority. So language helps us to distinguish what is from God and what is from man. And sometimes you can begin to categorize the teachers as being this or that, even the aspect of whether or not they're traditionalists in the sectarian sense of the Church of Christ because they use certain biblical terminology. Sometimes when we talk to people in religion, it becomes obvious that Maybe they're not real familiar with the scriptures or at least they don't use the scriptures for much of their authority because they don't use the words that the scriptures use. There are phrases the New Testament Christians, I think, seldom see in the religion's teachings of the, of the world. And you turn on the radio or you go to some of the writings of religionists today and see how many times they talk about obeying the gospel. You ever hear that language outside of the Lord's church, obeying the gospel? Or they're being baptized for their mission of sins? Where'd that phrase come from? That comes right out of the Bible. And we should not be ashamed to use language that comes right out of the Bible to describe what God wants us to do. Lessons that have to do with authority, whether that this is from God or man, that there's one faith, there's one, there's one baptism, that there's one body. That's the language that comes straight from where? That comes straight from the language of God out of Scripture. And many times in religion you don't hear that much today. And so there are many times religious traditions that exist where people develop their own language other than using the Bible language and people then accept that language as though it comes from the Bible. The idea of calling on someone to accept Jesus as their personal Savior in terms of conversion, where'd that come from? It didn't come from the Bible. There are no passages that talk about an apostle or anybody else inspired telling someone to accept Jesus as their personal Savior. Now those words might describe the aspect of putting commitment into Christ and putting my trust in Jesus' sacrifice. 
but it's developed a language that's totally foreign to what the Scriptures actually say. And sometimes we speak those languages in religious circles. We talk about the social gospel. There are other languages that I think that, uh, that describe the erection of human doctrine that are not found in Scripture, but the language itself has been accepted in the vernacular of religion. We talk about the fall, once saved, always saved, and a person had a depraved nature and the aspect of imputed righteousness. Where did that language come from? Where did those phrases come from? They came out of false doctrine. But even among ourselves, we may develop language that shows that we're not really in tune with what the Bible says about the undenominational character of the Lord's church. I've heard Christians talk about uh, a church of Christ congregation. That's, that language itself, is, you see, is showing that you really don't understand that there is not nothing, nothing such as a group of churches of Christ that make up the church of Christ. That there is one church, and each church stands autonomous in its relationship to Jesus Christ, as it said. And again, this aspect of, well, we're of the restoration heritage. You have every right to define yourself any way that you want to, but one way I'll never define myself is that my religion is of the restoration heritage. My heritage goes all the way back to Acts chapter 2. I'm a New Testament Christian, if you want to use that description. I'm a child of God. I'm a Christian. And to be satisfied with that language, that religion, I think, is very important. When we don't speak the language of God, when we shy away from or we're ashamed to say things that come right out of the Bible and use phrases out of the Bible, may very well be, you see, cutting off our opportunity to express to individuals what the Bible actually says. Or cutting off the opportunity for individuals to associate who we are with what the Bible actually teaches. And it may very well impact our ability to transmit our identity to others. Interesting uh, particular event. First Peter four eleven says, "If anyone speak, let him speak as the oracles of God." Where oracles there means words. It means transmitted words. So what's Peter saying? If you're going to serve, he says, you serve as God instructs. If you're going to talk, talk the way God reveals the words to you. Be attuned to His language and speak the language that God's revealed in Scripture. But. There's an interesting, uh, I think, event in Judges chapter 12. When, when you can't speak a certain language, when you can't say things, and sometimes religions today are unwilling to use the language of the Bible to describe. Uh, you know, we have some problem with words. You know, like the word submit. Is the word submit in the Bible? Are women to submit to their husbands? Are we to submit to God? Are we to, uh, should we uh, use that word? Well, there it is in the scriptures, even from both the Greek and the Hebrew language, the word submit means to obey. And it's the word's right there in scriptures. Now we can decide we're not going to use that word, that that word's too hard for us. Who can understand that? Who could possibly think that one person should have to submit or obey to another person? But when we do that, when we decide to do that, understand that we begin to speak a different language than what the Bible actually speaks. And sometimes we're unwilling to speak the language of the scriptures. It says that in essence, that we're not from God. During the period of uh, Gideon, Gideon had won, I think that's correct, in Judges chapter 12, they won a great victory uh, in behalf of the Ephraimites. The Gileites got very upset because Gideon didn't call them. No, it was Gideon, it was Jephthah. Jephthah didn't call them uh, to join them in the battle. And so they kind of uh, got their ire up and decided they were going to, the, that the, uh, Gilead, that the uh, Ephraimites were going to make war against the people of Gilead and they were going to settle a grudge against them. 
And so they came and said the Gilead seized the fords of the Jordan before Ephraimites arrived. They were coming at them and so they just uh, they had taken the, the areas around there and they were, they, they were those who were escaping to try to get out. And so when the Ephraimite, when, it, when he escaped, he said, let me cross over. The men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? Now that's like saying, are you the enemy? You know, you got to get a guy to admit if you're a Gilead, if, he's got a, if there's a Gilead down there that he's an Ephraimite when they're warring with one another, the most common thing would be to say, no, no, that's not me. And so they said, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, they would say to him, say Shibboleth. And he would say Sibboleth. For they, they could not pronounce it right. <laughs> kind of tricky, huh? That you would use a person's language against them. That the person who was an Ephraimite could not say this word correctly. That it left off the, it left off the proper sound. So, it was, so if you made him say it, you immediately recognize uh, he's not one of us. And then they killed him. Interesting story that's there. I think it may very well fit this aspect of the language of God. If a person's unwilling to use what the Bible actually says, if they're not willing to describe things by the words that we find in Scripture, if they, in essence, the natural man, cannot pronounce that in their teaching, that may tell us something about them. Maybe they're the enemy because they can't really pronounce God's word in their teaching. And so what we had to recognize, I think, is that we need to say Bible things in Bible ways. We need to use the language of the Bible to find our authority. And we need to teach the truth, as Paul says, as it comes from the Spirit of God. To obey the gospel, to, search, to, to, find, to, to find authority for what we do, to find out whether something is from God or man. To be willing to say, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. We have to be willing to teach those things. Not just because we believe them, but because God says them. And they're part of his language. So we need to learn to speak God's language, so to speak. How do we do that? Well, what Gardner said in his article uh, that I remember was that uh, there were no easy pathways to learning another language. He said he spent two or three years learning it every day, immersing himself in the Spanish language. And he mentioned in the article that uh, there were times in which individuals would say, you know, all you have to do is buy these tapes and put the earphones on, and while you're sleeping you can learn. And no, that doesn't work. <laughs> Just listening to the Spanish language while you sleep won't teach you Spanish. There, there are no shortcuts. If you want to know how to teach the Word of God and how to speak the language of the Scriptures, we've got to open the Bible. We've got to spend time in it. We have to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We have to, as, Paul, as God told the Israelites, we have to take the word of God and write it on our doorpost so that every time we go out the door, there it is. Write it on our forehead so that everybody we look at sees the word of God reflected back at them. Write it on the palms of our hands so every time we start to do something is guided by what God's word actually says. That that's how you learn the language of God. And there are sometimes Christians who have been Christians for 10 to 15 years that still don't know what the Bible teaches about the Lord's church. They can say the word predestination, but they don't know what the Bible teaches about predestination. And so there are a whole lot of things, you see, that we need to learn about the language of God so we can not only transmit it to ourselves, but so ultimately we can speak the actually words of God that he would have us speak. Thank you for your attention tonight. I hope that I haven't completely confused you, that it hasn't been as though someone was speaking a different language to you uh, as we spoke about these things from God's Word.
I'm absolutely committed that God spoke verbally the Word of God into our lives through through the preaching of the Apostles so that you and I today in this far removed culture could understand precisely what God wanted us to do to be His child. That the words of the Bible are not confusing, they're not complex. You can look even at the simple examples of the book of Acts and understand that the way a person became a Christian in the first century is the very same way a person becomes a Christian in the 21st century or the 25th century, if the Lord cares. He that believes and baptized shall be saved. Everyone in the book of Acts that came to be a Christian, came to understand that Jesus had died for their, uh, their sins on the cross, they'd risen from the third day, they were willing to turn their life around and repent of the things that they'd done in the past, to understand that they were sinners, that they were dead in their sins, but that God could make them alive. And that they had to turn away from that sin and repent. And they were willing to confess that Jesus Christ was their Savior before men. That through that confession they were willing to voice their allegiance to God. And then every one of those individuals who were willing to get to that point in, the, in, the, in their objective faith were baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. That was the gospel message. Those words are the language of God. Not of a church, not of a person. They come from the language of God. Will you accept them? Maybe we can help you tonight. While we stand and while we sing.